This is the Aeon Byte interview, and it's a very special show today. So happy to have back Dr. Arthur Vers-Louis to discuss, well, it's a two-part series uh, we'll, uh, called American Gnosis, based on his upcoming book. And this is uh, the first part, uh, which will draw upon the book and some other of his research. Arthur, thank you very much for coming on the show. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh, you, you, you're really uh, doing a service by, uh, to your, for your audience by creating, you know, the, these uh, uh, podcasts on Gnosticism in American and uh, global society. I think it's, I think it's unique and it's, it's really a great uh, series. So thank you for having me on. Oh, pleasure is all ours. Yeah, people keep telling me there's a growing interest in Gnosticism, and I can see why looking at our times. Uh, but uh, there's always so much more scholarship, even when talking to April DeConnick. Uh, she was telling me, oh, I hope they don't discover anything else because we still have so much of the texts and the con. We, we need more people to do this re research and get more insight. So I am grateful for the work that you and other scholars do. Uh, April and Jeff Kripal, Jeff Kripal and so many others, Dr. David Litwa, to really get into these texts and ideas and how they manifest across history and is a living thing. So, and a living book would be uh, your upcoming book. Tell us about how this came about, Arthur. Well, it's, it's primarily about Gnosticism in contemporary American society, but it's also about how Gnosticism has a global presence because you can't really separate out uh, the title is American Gnosis because it's primarily North American, although some of the figures in it are are South American, and so uh, it's uh, essential. And then the South American authors are very much embedded in a, a European uh, uh, originating discourse. So it's it's really a global book ultimately, but. It's about contemporary society, and the way the book emerged is I laid out a plan for uh, Oxford University Press, kind of an overall proposal, and they accepted it, and then I launched into it not really knowing like what I would find, and so it was really a book of exploration, and I ended up with a completely different book than what I started with. <laughs> Essentially not adhering to the plan at all, because what you discover is some of it was in the plan. Uh, for example, I have chapters on uh, Gnosticism, Neo-Gnosticism. I call the contemporary phenomenon Neo-Gnosticism to really separate it clearly from ancient Gnosticism, because I think we're really dealing with different phenomena. Uh, when you're looking at contemporary forms of it, you're seeing something that has resonances with late antiquity and with the Nag Hammadi gospels and Nag Hammadi texts and so on, but it's fundamentally a modern phenomenon. And so that's why I use this term neo-Gnosticism. And I discuss in the book neo-Gnostic films and anime and, and uh, games, gaming, uh, mm -hmm. and there's always new things. My students right now, right this moment as we speak, are doing a, uh, in a, in a course, are, are doing their own exploration and, and uh, are finding things that I've never heard of before that are clearly neo-Gnostic. Uh, they have not clearly explicitly Gnostic resonance. So I, I go through film, I go through literature, uh, and then I explore also some things that haven't really been ever explored before. And 
so that's that's been really a, it's been just a mind bending trip to do this book. It it really is, and I think readers will find that to be the case too. That as you go into this area, you have to change the way you see things. You cannot look at these subjects the same after you go through this. You can't. Mm-mm. No, not at all. And uh, yeah, I mean, even recently, there's a show called uh, Silo, a big hit show on Apple TV, very Gnostic. And six months ago, I'm doing a biography on Elvis Presley. And lo and behold, I found out he read the Nag Hammadi Library, and he was very inspired by the Gospel of Thomas. So like you said, it's a, it's a living thing, and it's more popular than ever. Why do you think there are so many Gnostic themes in popular culture? I mean, obviously, the big uh, suspect, Arthur, is Philip K. Dick. He's inspired a whole generation of writers, directors, video game producers. Jung continues to be very popular just in people's personal therapy and so forth. Simulation theory is very popular. Uh, Blake's warning about Eurozen in a mechanistic society. Lo and behold, it's popular. Conspiracy theories and paranoia are not even popular. To some, it's a coping skill. So do you think these are these the reasons you see for Gnosticism being so relevant, scientific, and even popular? I think it's it's just so interesting. And that's why I I you know delved into I dove into the the research, which took several years uh, to really write, uh, to write up and research before that, uh, you know, I started by looking at, in the book, I look at Hans Jonas and his, the way he depicted Gnosticism. And I say that essentially it's a 20th century depiction of Gnosticism. It's not that it's accurate. It's that, and he said this himself, it reflects these pre-existing things in contemporary philosophical, literary, religious thinking. And, you know, that is a good way to think about how Gnosticism appears in contemporary society. Um, Chulianu, Ion uh, Chulianu, the, the Romanian scholar, said that uh, uh, Gnosticism could be understood in terms of uh, like all culture, he said, uh, building blocks. And so Gnosticism has, this is essentially modern forms of it, neo-Gnostic film and neo-Gnostic literature can be understood in terms of building blocks. So what are the building blocks? Well, I offer 10 of them. And these are basically based on uh, Jonas and a little bit of Chulianu, but basically... uh, the idea that you have a demiurge, uh, you have an artificial creation, artificially constructed uh, uh, society. Actually, most of neo-Gnosticism is is critical, not of the cosmos, as people often think, but rather of society. It's a societal critique. So a demiurge, a a a kind of fake creator, um, or a kind of construct creator, archons, Gnosis, the idea of gnosis, the idea of uh, spiritual realization, that's also freedom. Uh, The idea of a kind of uh, savior figure or revealer figure. Uh, You know, there are all these different elements and they're building blocks. And so I think it's much more that the building blocks appeal to people as a way of understanding our world, our contemporary environment. And so they draw these building blocks out, some cases like the Matrix series, not even necessarily directly even knowing about Gnosticism. (laughs) It's just that the Matrix has all these building blocks in it. And, you know, the creators of the series, uh, as you know, explicitly have said it Gnostic. What, you know, that's who says that. And yet, actually, it's arguably the most not or one of the most influential Gnostic neo-Gnostic film series, even though they don't really call it that. Well, why is that? It's because they're using the building blocks. They're, they're drawing on these themes, if that makes sense. 
No, that makes uh, perfect sense. Yeah, I believe in, uh, I was reading your paper, you called it stereotypical gnosis, and you reference uh, John Murdoch in Dark City and the tuning that sort of, oh, I wake up to this evil construct that's that's keeping me down and I got to use my innate powers to wake up. So that that's what you say is today's neo-Gnosticism, right? Well, Dark City is one of the great films. It's really one of the great films. If And if you want to see a neo-Gnostic film, it's definitely <laughs> at the very top of the list. So you're absolutely right on that. But think about Dark City and neo-Gnosticism in terms of today. Uh, think about, for example, Mark Zuckerberg and, quote, meta, meta, M-E-T-A, as in metaphysics, as in transcendence. But what, what is the perverse transcendence here? The perverse transcendence of meta is to create a virtual reality. And Zuckerberg has said directly that he, in conversation, that he sees himself in meta as a kind of demiurge, as a kind of God figure with, with he says, Genesis as his prototype, you know, creating this world. Well, I mean, if that's not uh, a, a <laughs> contemporary manifestation of essentially dark city or, uh, you know, artificial reality with a neo-gnostic uh, building block dimensions, I don't know what is. So, so yes, it, these things exist in contemporary society very clearly. And it's not that Zuckerberg is necessarily himself thinking, oh, I'm a Gnostic Demiurge, but he's actually a Gnostic Demiurge, right? <laughs> yeah. If it quacks like a duck, walks like a duck, uh, speaks like a Demiurge, I guess. <laughs> exactly. And, um, yeah, and even with uh, Elon Musk and is that whatever Neuralink to our brain, that's like straight out of the secret book of John where the archons are now building our minds and everything else. So demiurges galore. So are you saying that the difference, neo-Gnosticism and classical Gnosticism, is you mentioned the universe, how in neo-Gnosticism you're pushing back, it's more social, political, uh, is there anything else? I mean, if, if Valentinus and Simon Magus came here in a time machine, what would be their critique of neo-Gnosticism? <laughs> well, I think it's that contemporary neo-Gnosticism, first of all, let me say that it's very deep. This is These themes are very deeply embedded, not only in film, like Dark City and Matrix and and uh, there's just a, a a long series of names that I give and examples. And I don't even give all the examples because I delve into some more deeply, but film, uh, video, but then literature, American literature, when you survey it in the book, what I do is I have a chapter and survey American literature. And I go from Melville, who who has been widely in Moby Dick. Yeah. You know, I, I've actually demonstrated that there are clearly Gnostic elements, and I show where he got them. Um, Nathaniel Hawthorne, all the way through to uh, Thomas Pynchon, uh, all these different figures that I discuss in there. The H.P. Lovecraft horror uh, uh, Robert Frost, the Demiurge's Laughter, Cormac McCarthy. I mean, oh, it's so startling once you start realizing gr the great American writers are so influenced by Gnosticism. It's it's, it's startling, just like England's yes. poet William Blake is a walking, talking Gnostic. <laughs> the irony. Well, Cormac McCarthy and Thomas Pynchon, I mean, and so many others, what I do in the book actually is I discuss them, uh, but I discuss them in terms of what other scholars say and how how many scholars say, oh, look, this is neo-Gnostic. Huh? Look here, Cormac McCarthy, he's neo-Gnostic. <laughs> and so what I'm doing is building the case by showing so many people have already seen this and recognized it. And Cormac McCarthy is an important example because he also, his work, uh, goes over into film and with something like Blood Meridian, uh, it's a classic work on the level of Moby Dick. It's 
It's an oh, amazing yeah. book. Very deep. Oh, it's also very disturbing uh, and, uh, you know, dark as really all of Cormac McCarthy is. But that darkness is a distinctively American way of seeing things, which you can see in others as well, like Robinson Jeffers in particular, the great poet Robinson Jeffers. Uh, these these folks have an American, you know, uh, way of seeing the world, which is, um, I would say, very, it's, it's dark, but it's also stoic. It's a kind of uh, Gnosticism with, it's a sort of neo-Gnosticism without redemption, uh, without transcendence. And I show how in occasionally a little bit of transcendence leaks out in Thomas Pynchon, like a tiny little, you see, like a little tiny ray of light in the distance, yeah. but you're not sure whether it's real or not. And he's not sure either. And the reason I say that is what I talk about in the book is uh, how in American neo-Gnosticism, essentially what you have is uh, not, it's cosmological, but it doesn't include what I call metaphysical gnosis, which is this mm. element of transcendence. So this is true of the film, largely, not completely. There are some ambiguous examples. Literature almost completely. And in the case of politics, political neo-Gnosticism or using neo-Gnostic elements in political memes and so on, there's not a lot of uh, metaphysical transcendence there. So the book, so somebody like um, Valentinus or even more Basilides, Basilides uh, really is my favorite of the- You've uh, written books about it. Yeah, great books, yeah. Yeah, he's he he did some extremely the closest to the uh, negative way mysticism of Meister Eckhart and of Dionysus the Areopagite. Uh, he's the the classic mysticism. Basilides is really right in tune with that, and so he would not. He came he came to contemporary America, and he's looking around. He is not going to find that you know in these folks. These themes of archons, uh, the theme of demiurge, these are very contemporary themes. They are ways of understanding our society, but they are not, uh, they do not include the, the, the theme of transcendence or sal you could call it salvational, really it's liberation, I think might be better, or spiritual freedom or transcendence. That's just not there in film. It's not there in literature. It's not there in politics for sure, which is very, you know, neo-Gnostic memes are uh, typically on the right. And we can talk about why that is. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they, however funny they are, they almost never include themes of transcendence. So Basilides coming here would simply not recognize very much. Uh, Somebody like Valentinus, he would say, you don't have archons right. You don't have this right. I don't know what you people are thinking. Um, so he would be, so there's really a divorce, I think, or a, a great distance between what's happening today and what was visible in, what's visible in the Nag Hammadi library. But I don't care because I'm looking at the contemporary version of this. And I just followed things where I thought, you know, I just followed up. I mean, I just, the whole book is the trail of my exploration. And I was just fearless in exploring, right? Yeah, and uh, glad this happened. Yeah, it is true. I mean, even like in Blood Meridian, you have, you just, uh, you have this, yeah, very intense novel, a very graphic ending, seemingly. Your stomach's turning, it, you're losing despair, and then there's, that little scene with the guy doing the sparks, you know, like you said, that little hope of transcendence that if you blink, you'll miss. But it is true. And 
why do you, I think a lot of it isn't the maybe the mythology of the land? Obviously, we're talking the Wild West and its existential dread and danger probably feeds into it. And on the other hand, as I've told people, it's very interesting that the sort of, uh, again, existential, almost nihilist, detective noir and Gnosticism really mold together, like in Blade Runner, The 13th Floor, Dark City, many of Philip K. Dick's novels. Yeah. You notice that, that these two genres, the Western and the detective noir, are truly American Gnosticism? Yeah, that there's, there is a noirish dimension, definitely, too. Now, the book covers much more than uh, film and, you know, anime and, and uh, literature, although I do survey uh, major, you know, major figures in literature, but when it comes to, uh, and I discuss the noirish element to some extent, but that's really interesting that you, that you mention this because it leads me to think here out loud about that kind of, uh, stoic and, mm. uh, pessimistic and, uh, existentialist aspect of American neo-gnosticism, which is, which is definitely present throughout the majority of what I survey. Not, by the way, in everything. Uh, there, I want to get to a figure that I that I discuss in this book, who literally has never had an article or anything written about him uh, in scholarship before. Uh, a brand new figure that's in this book. And I want to I want to talk about him because he violates some of these some of these things we're talking about. He's kind of a counterexample. Uh, but you know, you're right. The kind of I want to say pessimism is a reflection of, and the noirish dimension is a reflection of the society in which we find ourselves. It's also maybe connected to the existential dimensions of the American Western landscape that are so, uh, uh, you know, des the desert, the harshness of the desert, that's present. It's a character. It's a living presence in McCarthy's work. It's a living presence in, uh, Rob you know, Robinson Jeffers's work and mm -hmm. in, in many others. So I, you know, I don't want to, I can't ignore that. But there's a an element also of our society uh, in its contemporary forms as can be understood as a kind of technological trap, a kind of systemic uh, machine in which we're caught. And it, of course, if it's a machine, it's constructed. And who constructed it? Who controls it? Uh, these are ways of thinking, and so that's present in somebody like Pynchon, uh, you know, mm -hmm. Pynchon's novels, uh, that kind of skepticism of the machine and machine society. That's present in The Matrix. That's present in so many works, and I think it's also a motivating force in contemporary politics because people feel that, you know, instinctively that they're caught in this technocratic system. Right. So the perfect set of memes for understanding our place in our position and how we are vis-a-vis -vis the society is neo-Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. No question about it. No question. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Even something like, uh, True Detective season one is actually has both. It's got the noir detective and the Western feel to it. So that show really did uh, do uh, do well. So you were talking about why does this neo-Gnosticism lean or um, appeal to the right? Although, of course, if you go online, you know, the, the Gnostics are still the great boogeyman for fundamentalists and others. Even people like Jordan Peterson, he'll criticize the Gnostics, but he loves Jung. It's like the, there's this cognitive dissonance. It's like, uh, you know, yes. you can't, you can't, you know, they're both connected, but why do you think the right, uh, why, it, why does it move right? 
Well, that's what's that's what's really interesting. I did not expect this actually. Um, I didn't expect what I have in the book. Um, I didn't anticipate it. Uh, I was exploring. Now, in an earlier book called The New Inquisitions, I discuss this a little bit. I discuss the kind of inquisitorial neocon right and figures like um, uh, Eric Vogelin, who created this, he had this confused kind of garbled idea that somehow anything he didn't like was somehow Gnostic. And so he's making he, a comeback too, Arthur. I hear more and more about him. And it's Giuliano has it's, that famous passage where he's like, everything is Gnostic and he's confused. He's kind of talking about Vogelin, you know? Yes, he's mocking Vogelin. He says, everything is Gnostic and he's mocking Marx Vogelin. Marx is he Gnostic. Says, Hitler yeah, Gnostic. the supermarket Krausen. is Gnostic. I'm, you know, the supermarket, my car is Gnostic. The, my shoes are Gnostic. You know, yeah, he's, yeah. he's mocking that. Well, you know, the thing is, it's such messed up thinking because basically what he does is he he projects what he thinks Gnosticism is, a projection of Gnosticism, which is inaccurate, onto things that have no relationship whatsoever to Gnosticism and, in fact, would have killed Gnostics the very minute they poked their head up. I'll give some very clear examples, okay? So he Vogelin typically will say the left is, quote, Gnostic. Uh, left or, left uh, movements are Gnostic. Chinese communism is Gnostic. Russia, Soviet Russia is Gnostic. Uh, Paul Pot is Gnostic. Well, no, they're not. They're not in any way. None of the themes that we're talking about, not a single neo-Gnostic theme appears in in as figure, you know, as as instrumental in Soviet Russia. I mean, the Soviet Union. Chinese communism is somehow Gnostic? How is that even remotely feasible? I mean, they the Chinese, you know, fell over themselves to destroy in the Cultural Revolution every scintilla of traditional religion of Chinese and Tibetan and other forms, you know, doing incredible cultural damage. In what way is that, quote, Gnostic, unquote? Well, it's not. So you're absolutely right that this dynamic that Vogelin represents, because he's not alone, uh, there's a podcaster floating around who who has um, taken it upon himself to define, quote, Gnosticism, unquote, for us as the very, very bad third current in the West. And so you have faith, and then you have reason, and you have this extremely bad and dangerous current. And so... Who is this guy? Well, he's just another one of these voices, putatively on the right. Put I say putatively because there's a whole different right. There are different views on the right. There isn't just one right. The, the far right, the so-called, uh, what people often use as a term far right, is often just people who are patriots. And the patriots, as it turns out, often use neo-Gnostic memes. And I have a whole collection of them. I've got hundreds and th probably thousands by now of memes from the right. And so let's just think about this for a moment. Why would this appeal to people on the right? Okay. Um, well, uh, let's give some examples. You think for a moment about many of the memes uh, often they use uh, themes from the film They Live oh, yeah. or sometimes Dark City, uh, sometimes Matrix with the red pill. Mm -hmm. So let's think about this for a second. Uh, you look at contemporary American society from a point of view of people who are on the dissident right. That's the dissident right. They're dissidents from the mainstream. Well, a dissident is also, according to the U.S. government right now, the number one most frightening thing in the entire world. So they have a, a, against them the apparatus of the FBI, the NSA, Homeland Security. Uh, so the federal government consists in a bunch of archons, 
<laughs> from the point of view of the memes. And so I have memes that show this and that show the red pill. What is the red pill? Well, it's waking up to the system being against right. you. That's why people on the right refer to themselves as dissidents, the dissident right. So the reason I'm saying, giving all this is that here you have this strange situation in which you have these people who are on the putative right who are attacking Gnosticism. And then you have all of these people on the dissident right who are using these neo-Gnostic memes. Really, that's the main place you see in neo-Gnosticism because it works. In other words, as a way of understanding what's happening in society, those building blocks are correct. That's from their, the people of the right, that's their point of view. What they're seeing directly corresponds to uh, archons, a demiurge, a falsely constructed reality, um, hostile, you know, a hostile society, um, a red pill waking up. People refer to waking up with a red pill. It's ubiquitous on the right. Everybody uses it. Even the putative right uses the red pill now. Well, what is the red pill? It's waking up. So here you have cosmological gnosis, Gnosticism, but no Gnosis. There's no real transcendence in any of these memes, but you find the memes really being quite prevalent. So I, you know, this is something that I've not seen discussed literally anywhere. I know. And uh, some, uh, now I feel like Sophia needs to come down from the pleroma. It's like, hey, what about me? Even Basilides, I was even in his system. I'm in a lot of Gnostics, what happened to the divine feminine? And both sides, all sides are like, oh, yeah, we forgot about you, Sophia. Men reject wisdom, right? That's just the eternal plight. Well, it's an interesting question, you know. Uh, the whole, we're moving right now, I think, through a vast set of changes in what I call civil religion. And so everything is being contested at a visceral level, at an existential level. And so on the one hand, you have uh, uh, various forms of feminism, but on the other hand, you have a movement toward, you could say, it's like the trad wife movement, for example. Right. Um, so you have all of these things uh, polarized in ways that are really uh, unprecedented, I think, certainly within the last century, I don't think there's ever been a time that's as, you know, or even even close to the kind of uh, existential changes we're going through. And so you're right, Sophia is not uh, present in very many memes. Uh, in some, I will say in some, for example, there's a meme which comes from uh, a very famous painting, and it shows this this uh, figure of liberty, female figure of liberty, passing across this kind of idyllic American landscape. So you could say that the figure, female figure of liberty, has this role in in the neo gnostic right, uh, the neo gnostic memes of the dissident right, I should say. Uh, this and that's that's fairly prevalent meme. I've seen it a number of times. I think it comes from a painting from Thomas Hart Benton. Uh, you know, and it's it's kind of I'm not sure it's even modified. So the figure of of the divine feminine through liberty, female figure, liberty. That's interesting. So I can't say that Sophia is completely gone from the from the map. <laughs> no, I've I've seen her in memes, but in relationship to her son, Yaldabaoth the Demiurge. So it's sort of a Freudian expression. She's trying to take care of him. He's burning the world. Uh, but of course, the 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 myth of Yaldabaoth and Sophia for modern times, it's wonderful because it really is a great expression of codependence, narcissism, helicopter parenting, the single mother, you know. There's so much to unpack in that myth of Yaldabaoth and Sophia. So I have seen some, seen some memes on that. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I have to say, you know, and then there are different ways to understand Sophia because in the Christian Theosophic tradition, 
Sophia, really the mythological dimensions aren't there at all. There's, there's Sophia as this uh, figure, divine feminine figure uh, who is instrumental in the creation of nature uh, and then also instrumental in human redemption and the process of human redemption. But the kind of other dimensions of Gnosticism and the mythology are not present. So it, but then that's not a Gnostic uh, movement either. It's using the same building blocks, but in a completely different way, right? So it's yeah. it's it's very interesting these different uh, manifestations in contemporary society. I have to say, yeah, and of course we can't. Uh, we have to mention, of course, the work of very popular writers whose followers are easily in the millions: David Icke, John Lamb Lash. They have a sort of modern Sophia myth, right? Sophia is Gaia, or Sophia is this extra terrestrial. Again, the other thing why Gnosticism works today, Arthur, is because Gnosticism, as Eric Davis says, has this sci-fi sensibility, and with all the UFO stuff, the Gnostic myth just sort of doesn't it just fits in perfectly with ufology and extraterrestrials. That's absolutely true. What you're saying, and and, uh, you know, I have sections in the book, uh, not whole chapters, but I have quite a section on, on David Icke and his, and his uh, uh, different books and where he's come to, which is so interesting. And then John Lamb Lash as well. I also discuss him. And I try to discuss them, even though there's a little bit of uh, maybe a rancor between, uh, you know, uh, Lash and and uh, uh, Ike in particular, but also, I don't think it goes both ways, actually. Um, but but there's, uh, you know, I have fairly extensive sections on them because they're quite influential, and they actually came both came to a place pretty close to the dissident right. Uh, so they're not maybe a hundred percent overlap, but they're definitely in that same ballpark. And so their neo-Gnosticism is very influential. And Ike, of course, is, is uh, in the UK, uh, but he's in England, but he's uh, so influential in contemporary uh, American society and in the memes, especially the reptilian memes and uh, the UFO stuff Ridiculous, and so on. Yeah. You cannot uh, escape it. And so I have to discuss it. Otherwise people would see these memes and like, what the hell, you know, but, <laughs> but you go back to 1989 or whenever it was early nineties and you, you find, um, you know, his reptilian, where he launched his reptilian stuff out of South Africa. And that's really had legs. And all of this fits roughly into a neo-gnostic kind of paradigm. So the reptilian overlords then are the you know, the kind of uh, archon figures, um, hostile archon figures. And uh, so you have reptilian, shape-shifting, multidimensional, you know, uh, reptilian overlords. That's that's your model, maybe. Or maybe it's, uh, you know, some other group that's actually in charge. It just depends which of these. But all of them can be, pl you can plug them into a neo-gnostic framework and understand things much, much more clearly. Another figure that I, I wanted to mention briefly is Miguel Serrano. Miguel Serrano is not very well known on the, he's not discussed much on the dissonant right in the public eye. But when you go deeper, when you go into the deeper levels, um, he is present for sure. By deeper, I mean, uh, when you're talking on the level of uh, say, Twitter, not so much, uh, presence, you know, all these kinds of authors on the uh, dissident right get banned uh, pretty swiftly. On Gab, Gab, there's no banning, it's free speech, but you don't see much of Miguel Serrano on there. It's mm. in the deeper levels of the Fediverse. Uh, once you go down into the, uh, or out into the, uh, uh, you could say posting universe, P-O-A-S-T-I-N-G, the posting universe, you find uh, Miguel Serrano, 
who, uh, and Miguel Serrano had a really interesting neo-Gnostic framework, which is essentially that Adolf Hitler was an avatar figure and that he revealed a path uh, of restor- social restoration, cultural restoration that was esoteric, that was neo-Gnostic esoteric uh, and in a world religious context. So Hitler as an avatar figure, um, absolutely vast works. I mean, extraordinary works. I, I've read all of Serrano. I actually got uh, many of his books in Spanish. Uh, they were mm. sent me from this special collection, uh, original editions with all these color illustrations. It's really amazing. Uh, Serrano is, is an influential figure in the underground. So I discuss him. He's, he's Chilean. He was the Chilean ambassador. And he forged these connections with people in the German orbit uh, after the Second World War. And then in uh, late, later in life, he created these, these uh, vast books about Hitler as an avatar. And Serrano is definitely neo-Gnostic. Uses, his system cannot be understood without neo-Nazism. And again, it's on the right. Then I have a chapter on a guy by the name of Charles Musace. And Charles Musace is the one I mentioned. He is just, if you get the book for one chapter, get it for the chapter on Charles Musace. Because he is something else. He was born uh, on the East Coast in America, and he ended up getting his PhD in Christian theosophy. Uh, He did his PhD on a figure named Dionysus Frere, who created, he was responsible for these amazing illustrations on Christian mysticism in the 18th century. And he, 17th, 18th century in that period, uh, Christian theosophy was, was a living movement in UK and England, in um, Germany and in the Netherlands. Uh, And so he did his work on that. But then Musace went on after that to found a publishing company. He published the first works uh, in translation, uh, first work in translation of Tibetan Buddhist Tantra, uh, still in print. Then he went to Egypt. Uh, He became enamored of Egyptian religion. He connected up with the scientific community and created a form of mathematics called hypernumbers and hyper mm. hypernumbers and hyperdimensional theory. Then he created this kind of he, all this time he's publishing books, okay, and he's publishing these articles, published articles in the scientific community. He ultimately became a director of a scientific research organization in Switzerland. And at the same time, created this shamanic neo-gnostic path for people based mm-hmm. on music, on hyper numbers and multi-dimensional music. And he created a, a system of music, which I have on CDs, thanks to a student of his. Oh, wow. uh, you listen to the CDs based on a certain time frame, and that gives you that changes your physiology and allows you to create a subtle body light body system Mm. in order to get out of our very messed up world. And so this is, this is uh, uh, a kind of nutshell overview of Charles Musace, who is uh, just brilliant uh, intellectually. I mean, there's no question about that. Uh, at the same time, what he says is so wild that now, even more than 20 years after his sudden death, he feels like somebody from the future. He doesn't feel like he doesn't when you when you think about him, it's hard to think about him as being in the past. He feels like a writer from the future who somehow ended up in, in America in the wrong time, you know. He's a very strange figure, really remarkable. So I, I have to mention him, Charles Musace. Yeah, definitely want to check him out. And uh, 
it is ironic that you have uh, Vogelin on one side saying Hitler was a Gnostic, and then you got Serrano on the other side saying Hitler's a Gnostic, but for different reasons. So uh, it's just, it's a wacky ride with these people, and I love it. But then again, <laughs> the Gnostics were so wild in the first, second century. You know, Irenaeus is like, you guys just keep pumping out texts every five minutes, and it's tr driving me crazy. So I was going to say you brought up a book, uh, and I've talked to you about this. I think it's one of the uh, most important books that people should read, and that's your book, The New Inquisition. I'm actually doing a video on it, which I'm going to add at the end of our interview as sort of a summary of it. But uh, it's important because, again, I've been we've been doing shows on uh, totalitarianism, and I've been doing a lot of work on of course, uh, the great uh, Hannah Arendt. But most people who talk about totalitarianism, it's like a, a 19th century, 20th century phenomenon, right? Before it was just dictators and strongmen and so forth, with exceptions like witch hunts or the French Revolution. But uh, your book, I think, is so prevalent because you trace it back to the idea of the church fathers, the heresy hunters, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and how they were the ones who created the idea of, uh, of uh, thought crime and everybody has to think together and ratting out your neighbor and we follow an idea and sort of this mass formation. And it was all created so they could rat out the Gnostics who were hiding. I mean, today, most the, on the right, that people call the Gnostics a parasite religion. And so the church fathers needed to get rid of these parasites and whatever. And as you write, this idea continued. And even many of the people who uh, advocated for totalitarianism in the 20th century, they knew about the church fathers. They knew about Tertullian. They knew what the, the toolbox to use to bring about these regimes in the 20th century. So Anything else I'm missing, Arthur? Because I highly think people should get your book. Well, I appreciate it. And, you know, it's it's uh, a book that I wrote during a period when, uh, you know, at that time we had the so-called, you know, uh, in quotes, war on terror after, mm -hmm. you know, after, uh, you know, 9-11. And uh, so... You know, the book is inflected to some extent with that, but prior to the kind of assertion of assertion of hegemony that you see now with the left. And so, you know, the left, uh, as historically has been the case, it's the left that is, of course, there is, uh, you know, there is authoritarianism on the right. There's, there's no doubt that there are reactionary authoritarians. You could see, you could see many of the people who seized power, Pinochet, for example, or Franco or others, as really reactionary authoritarians, reactionary against the left. What I didn't include in that book, but really, if I were, if I were going to do a new edition today, it would include this, this what I'm talking about now. Uh, which manifests in different ways. Uh, so, for example, uh, people refer to, quote, cancel culture, unquote, but it's really uh, the, you know, the war on the opposition in eliminating dissenting voices on the from the left. Mm -hmm. And that is the, the single... Uh, most, uh, I would say, consequential and extreme development over the last, uh, say, 15 years since, you know, since that book uh, came out, 15, 20 years, it's roughly that development. And I would have included that in the book because that fits into our conversation here. This is why, and you're absolutely right to point it out, uh, on the right, you have these people who are saying, you know, like Vogelin, who are saying these these uh, defamatory things about Nazism without understanding the first thing about it, really. Or you have people who are really, they just want to be left alone. They want to have, a, you know, essentially uh, their own freedom. They, You know, freedom, liberation is very important to people on the dissident right. They want to be free. This is clear in countless memes. And here, uh, Gnosticism 
is a movement about freedom. And so that's why it, it appeals. But there's an internal dissent, which has to be on the right, which really ultimately has to be resolved, I think, if it can be, because otherwise what you're going to have is this perpetual opposition where the people on the right are the worst enemies of the people on the right, right? So on the one hand, you have all these these dissident right neo-Gnostic memes. And on the other hand, you have people saying, oh, Gnosticism, it's a parasite religion. It must be extirpated. And I am the great authority of Orthodox Christianity, which is only this narrow band of confessional belief system. And we have to stamp out the other side. As long as that side isn't called out, as long as that side continues, then you're going to have this kind of internal um, opposition that I think can't really be resolved. It's not really resolvable because Gnosticism is on the side of freedom. There's no question about that. That is what Gnosticism is about. It's a movement toward being free. And that that's uh, not parasitic. It is not the things that these people are saying. It's something very different. And, you know, I think that's a pernicious, I, I think that kind of thinking is pernicious and very um, wrong-headed. So... I agree. And why do you think the left did that switch? I mean, I'm, th- I'm trying to think, I assume, and again, this is a hypothesis, I'm speculating, but the left got so involved in secularism that, uh, I mean, people don't want to admit it, but something about the American Gnosis is that, and going back to William Blake's warning of Urizen in the mechanistic universe, uh, people might not want to hear it, but we are religious. Our minds are wired for religion and mysticism. In America, being religious means always being rebellious and independent. I know it's side of an irony, but the left went so secular that that's where the propaganda works really well. I mean, the Soviets knew that. And, the, and Mao, get rid of religion. We can control people. I know it's paradoxical, but what do you think, Arthur? Well, it's... You know, you just don't hear much about the cultural revolution or uh, about uh, uh, Maoism or uh, about the Soviet, the you know, the Soviet Union or going back to the French Revolution. The French revolutionaries, what was it? What was the, one of the first things they did? They went out into the countryside in Western France and murdered hundreds of thousands. Go, go, look on. Go Google it uh, if you're in the audience here. Uh, go, you can look this up. It's true. The One of the first acts of the French Revolution is, was revolutionaries after the revolution was to go out and uh, murder hundreds of thousands of French people in the countryside. Mm. There's a long history on the left of doing that, and, and that's not something that people want to talk about very much because it leads inexorably to questions about our contemporary system and where our system is in this kind of dynamic. And so it's not just a matter of, uh, well, uh, the, the left has turned secular. It's that the left has inherently in it. And by left, I mean, Marxism, communism, it has this lethal, extremely uh, pathological dimension that, uh, or aspect or tendency that uh, has to be guarded against because it results in millions of deaths if it is given complete authority. And so that's, that's just the truth historically, whether you like it or not. So it's not only that the left is secular, it's that that secularism is then bound to a war on religion, a hatred of people in the countryside, rural people, a hatred of mm-hmm. culture itself, overturning all culture, all of these things we've seen before and historically. And so, you know, the new inquisitions to fear are inquisitions coming out of that kind of uh, perspective because they can become incredibly lethal, as we saw in, for example, 
the figure of Paul Pot mm -hmm. uh, and the Khmer Rouge and the history of the Khmer Rouge as an example. So that's mm -hmm. what I think. <laughs> yeah. And of course, you're separating leftism from liberalism. I mean, I think liberalism and conservatism had their times. They were great. I think maybe we need to shell them. Same with the far left and uh, far right. And like you said, let's look for new vistas uh, with uh, the Gnostic spirit, I would say. But um, I agree with you. Absolutely. I think we need new vision. And I think Gnosticism, it, it uniquely, I think, as a, a set of building blocks for culture and religion, uniquely uh, allows us to analyze our own time. But in ways that people may find very challenging. This is the thing. You may not want to hear what, what it says about our society, but too bad, because only by going through that can you come out the other side and create something that's positive and not subject to these extreme, extreme kinds of uh, uh, tendencies that I was alluding to. So you're right. I, I'm looking at the future these days. Yeah, you did write a book about politics and Gnosticism based on Basilides and his vision for the future and so forth. So uh, you are exploring solutions from ancient times and throughout history and so forth. So that's the best we can do. <laughs> and uh, yeah, obviously this is the first half of our American Gnosis. I'm looking forward to the book because then we can unpack so much more. I look forward to the anime. Uh, I'm a big Neon Genesis fan. I'm not sure if it made your book, but there's so much. Uh, video games, I'm a little out of the loop, but people are always sending me, oh my God, I played this video game. It's so <laughs> not, it even has the Demiurge and Yaldabaoth as the main character. I mean, it's just so forth and so forth. So there's there's so much to explore. Anything else you want to tease the audience about your book? Although you already spoke a little on it. Well, I didn't mention the psychedelics. Uh, there's there's psychedelic gnosis chapter on that, and there's a chapter on future. On um, there's there's also a chapter that includes some contemporary. I call it gnosis without gnosticism, uh, the American movement of gnosis without gnosticism and metaphysical gnosis, and I have some people in there that have never been published on before, as far as I know, uh, first time appearing in this book also. So, and that, in, that includes some really distinctively American uh, figures coming in the wake of Franklin Merrill Wolf. Franklin Merrill Wolf was this amazing uh, uh, author uh, who lived in California in the mountains. And he, he had, he was a mathematician. He had a PhD in mathematics, and then he became a kind of recluse in the mountains, and he had all these spiritual experiences, and he wrote about them in mathematical terms. Mm. Um, and so I, I first talk about him because I have to, because then all these other people kind of uh, followed in his wake, and it's, it's a distinctively American movement, uh, free from religious uh sectarianism and focused on perennial what you could call perennialism uh but with a very buddhist gnostic uh mm. aspect it's american and gnostic and also uh definitely buddhist almost all of the spiritual practices are actually buddhist but the language is gnostic so there, there's some very interesting things in there and then at the very end I write about uh, uh, the nature of our era and where we are going and what to expect in the uh, more distant future based on what we're seeing now. And so that's, that's uh, all in the latter, the latter section of the book. Oh, well, we look forward to it and thank you. So, uh, Besides your book, anywhere else you want to send the audience? Any links or homepages or anything to your work, Arthur? I'll have it on the show notes, of course. Well, thank you for that. You know, one is, one is uh, there's a little more material about the book on uh, ArthurVersluice.com, uh, which includes some memes. Uh, and then 
Uh, also, there's Hyros.Institute, which is uh, Hyros.Institute is a nonprofit, and we have some videos and different different uh, conversations on there and some uh, information that people may find interesting about sacred sites and sacred landscape. But uh, for more on the book, ArthurVersluce.com. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate the chance to have this conversation and for us to start to explore what's been such a wild trip. Yes, so we've many only wild just begun, yeah. as Karen Carpenter sang. And yes, <laughs> exactly. The, the incarnation of Sophia. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I just saw in 1975, there was a poll of favorite drummers. Karen Carpenter was number one. John Bonham of Led Zeppelin was number two. So fascinating things you learn about people. <laughs> <laughs> she was an amazing drum. Like people forget Prince was one of the best guitar players of all times. We, we forget that gnosis, but uh, yeah, I digress. These things. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, yeah that's right. Yeah, well, thank you very much for coming on the show, Arthur, and we look forward to our next chat. Yeah, I look forward to it too. And thank you, Miguel. This this has been fun. And I, lo I look forward to the next next one as well. Likewise. Arthur. The origins of totalitarianism and thought control. Most are aware of the terms Orwellian, political correctness, thought police, or brave new world, as well as the oppressive secular and religious systems throughout history that inspired them. Although assumed that these individuality killing mechanisms are relatively modern constructs, the reality is that they are not only as old as Christianity but originated with Christianity itself. In his book, the New Inquisition, Arthur Fairschlausch, proposes that it was the heresy hunting of the early church fathers that spawned the very DNA for later totalitarian and police state institutions. Before the rise of the heresiologists, empires conquered almost solely for natural resources, slavery and prestige. For the most part, subjugated nations could keep their native faiths, customs and ideologies. Religious persecution within an empire usually arose when a certain priesthood or nobility earthly representatives of their specific gods ignited some form of insurrection. Per Feschlausch, a seismic shift away from this attitude occurred in the 2nd century C when Christianity began to solidify itself as an organized religion instead of multiple, independent sects. Church fathers such as Irenaeus of Lyons and Tertullian of Carthage saw the need to streamline the dogmas of their maturing religion to gain respectability within the Roman Empire. Dissent or autonomous speculation could threaten the very survival of Christianity, at least that was their rationale. They drew a harsh line in the doctrinal sand, referring to their form of Christianity as orthodoxy, from the Greek for right thinking. On the other side stood the Gnostics, who they labeled heretics, from the Greek to choose, in the context of independent thought diverging from standard norms. The demarcation spread to entire communities, as more heretics were exposed, and the term conveniently broadened to other sects, religions and even political principles. In other words, an enemy was no longer defined by action, outward allegiance or even citizenship, but by their very thoughts. As the orthodox wing grew and copulated with the Roman government, volumes of texts were written on how to recognize, decipher and correct those who had made a choice away from right thinking. Thinking for the first time in history could be criminalized by the state. This template for totalitarian control wasn't fully perfected until the arrival of the Inquisition in the 12th century. Despite common perception, 
the Inquisition was not implemented to deal with Jews, witches or other minorities, but ironically against the Gnostics the rebellious Cathars of southern France. With the blessing of the Pope, and the greed of opportunistic nobles, heresy hunting became fully weaponized to counter the resilience of the medieval Gnostics. Despite the advent of the Age of Enlightenment and democratic nations, history clearly reveals that the repressive formula of the early church fathers and medieval inquisitors was never abandoned. The new inquisition offers the infamous examples of authoritarian regimes and their thought police, the French Revolution corruptors, European-slash-Asia Marxism, Nazism, and various spectrums of fascism. Yet Ferschlausch proffers evidence of intellectuals who influenced notorious despotic movements, directly or indirectly, who were very well aware of the heresy hunters and their methodologies. Many certainly summoned the bogeyman of the Gnostics when needed. The question might arise of why the book is called The New Inquisition since thought crime, is an unkillable contagion that mutates and migrates to different hosts. The answer is the warning of Ferschlausch that the heresy hunting virus is still considered a viable toxin by many in power even in free societies. The satanic panic and illuminatiphobia of the 1980s and 1990s in the West are two cases that fortunately did not evolve into literal witch hunts. This organization is a Christian Illuminati creating false Illuminati implanted in the minds of the population to create schisms and manufacture threats, making it easier to control public perception. The grim truth is that the heresy hunting slash inquisition golem will never be destroyed, built in the infernal imagination of those who feel that the greater good means little free will and free thinking. And, as Ferschlausch points out, it is a dark irony that the main scaremongers of these two examples, Pat Robertson and Tim Leahy, were members of the clandestine Council for National Policy. The Gnostics took the first blows from this golem, and beyond countless millions have paid dearly because of nothing more than an idea to punish ideas. The modern-day Inquisitor no longer requires torture chambers or bribed neighbors. The internet, electronic messaging, and social media have made the public's thoughts more accessible than ever. All it takes to contaminate liberty is one wedding day between a dictatorial belief system and the state. Overnight, an individual's thoughts can be transformed into damning witnesses in a kangaroo court. Ideas can indeed change the world. But some ideas are best left in the infernal imagination of certain people, lest we get a brave new world and its golems. Arisa.